From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. This week on State Week, we're going to talk about an investigative report that focuses on concerns regarding juvenile detention facilities in Illinois, how youth are being treated, and what, if any, thing is being done about it. We'll talk more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And our guest this week is Molly Parker. She's a reporter with Capital News Illinois and assistant professor at SIU Carbondale. Molly, we're glad to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. So people might know about prisons. We've discussed that a lot on our show, but juvenile detention facilities, I don't think, are as well known. So let's just start there. What are these facilities? What do they do? So there are 16 of these facilities across Illinois. The furthest north is in Chicago. And the most southern one is in Benton in Franklin County, the southern end of the state. And the facilities we wrote about are similar to jails in the adult world. They're holding youth uh, pre-adjudication, so as their trials are pending in, in juvenile court, most of them have not been, you know, quote unquote, convicted or adjudicated delinquent, as they call it in the juvenile world yet. So again, it's similar to a jail. The language is just different. And when we're talking about juvenile, the juvenile side of criminal court. Um, and so these youth are sent there if a judge, um, you know, at the recommendation of the state's attorney finds that they are a danger to themselves or in the community, or perhaps they've been uh, picked up multiple times and may recommit you know, reoffend while they're awaiting their their court hearings, um, that's when they would be likely to be held at a facility like this. Is it safe to say that those who are in there are being locked up because of violent incidents? The statistics on that that I were able to find is actually that not the majority of them are not there for alleged acts of violent crime. Some are, certainly. Um, but you have also people who violated probation, um, you know, they can kind of come in for a lot of different reasons. And I did talk to some state's attorneys about this. Sometimes they're sent there, uh, not necessarily because of the, I mean, they, they are often, they are charged with a, a crime. Again, that's not what it's called, but they have been picked up, um, and have an allegation pending against them, but they, uh, they might even have unstable home environments. Uh, there are different factors beyond just violent crimes. Like that is one of them, but there are different factors that can also send youth to these facilities. Um, like I said, one state's attorney told me that he might recommend a youth go if they don't really have a, a safe home environment where they can be in, uh, or, or get away from the people who are contributing to, the cause of the alleged delinquency, and that, and that could even be parents, right? So there are some times where they might just find it a better, uh, a better, safer option to send someone to a facility like this. Unfortunately, if you can imagine, a lot of these kids have a lot of stuff going on in their lives that have led them down some of these troubled paths. And you reported, uh, I believe, youth as as young as ten can sometimes be in these facilities. That is what the state statute says. Um, now, the statistics on that are also, it's pretty rare that you'll have a 10-year-old in a facility, but they are allowed to keep children as young as 10. I would say the majority of the youth are teenagers, um, but you do see the numbers start to grow around 13, 14, which is still pretty young. 
I want to get into some of the incidents that you reported on, but overall, we're we're finding it seems to be that there's some concerns about excessive use of force and restraint. There's also questions about the training of the people that work there in some cases. Uh, and again, you mentioned there are 16 of these statewide, so this problem appears to be not just centered on one facility, although there are incidents uh, that we'll talk about in a moment at one in southern Illinois, but but. Overall, there seems to be a a systemic problem here. Is that correct? It does seem like there's a systemic problem. And in reading the reports that, you know, there's two different entities that review these facilities. That's the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice does audits of them, even though they do not run the facilities themselves. And then the Illinois Supreme Court, through its administrative office of the Illinois courts, also has an oversight role because these are... um, run by the chief judges in the counties where they're located and the supreme court aoic has a uh helps fund the staff that works there this the management of these are are sort of convoluted but if you look at their reports um both of these agencies have started doing annual reports and posting them online and they talk about problems throughout the system but there's a lot of uh disparity and some of them are considered sort of best practice pretty well run are getting told, you know, hey, everything you're doing is pretty well gold standard as far as your treatment of youth, and others are at the far other end where they're keeping youth uh, secluded for hours on end as, you know, as punishment or sometimes just because they don't have enough staff. Um, and these things are against state policy. There's, you know, uh, up to claims of, you know, one, one of the audits of a jail and uh, youth facility in central Illinois said that uh, the auditor from the state called the Child Welfare Services hotline, the DCFS hotline, after watching a recording of an incident where the staff was handling a youth during a restraint that that he obviously thought was very troubling. And while that was ultimately not substantiated by DCFS, DCFS is looking at this in a pretty limited lens, not necessarily for like, did they follow restraint procedures? So I think that, um, I think we did see problems across the system, but some of them just a lot worse than others. Let's talk about the one in southern Illinois, Franklin County, which is Benton, uh, right off Interstate 57, for those that don't know. That facility, you did focus on that. You focused on uh, an incident there involving one youth who was restrained and uh, suffered a broken arm. Uh, just just fill us in on that situation and, and what that incident was all about. It was a little before Christmas last year, so almost a year ago, and um, one of the things that I found in the records was that the Benton facility was is often calling on the Sheriff's Department, which is just right across the parking lot. Um, they're all right there in the same complex, and so when the staff at the Youth Detention Center, which is not related to the Sheriff's Office, the Sheriff's Office has nothing to do with operating it, Um, But when they're feeling overwhelmed or short-staffed, I've seen records that would say, you know, there's just two females working the night shift. Um, They would call on the sheriff's department for help. So they were frequently calling the sheriff's department in. Um, And when the sheriff's department came in, it seems like often that um, that escalated the situation. And so you had a youth who had been secluded in his room for days on end um, at the time, according to his testimony in a lawsuit. And that was frequent. According to the state reports, these kids were often just kept in the room, fed in the room. They might be let out for a shower every other day. And when they got quote unquote recreation time, it was going by themselves to a day room to sit for an hour. So essentially they were, they, it was effective seclusion sometimes for days or weeks on end. And so the kid got out into the recreation center. They took him to the gym. 
Uh, he got into a shouting match with another kid. So they call the police. Again, that's pretty routine. Uh, anytime there's any type of situation. And, you know, uh, the police report is pretty thin on details, which just said that the child, uh, the, the teen resisted and that his arm was broken. Um, it said that, he, you know, they notified the staff that they believed his arm was broken. So the sheriff's department did not dispute that fact. Um, but then the youth in his testimony said that, you know, it was a couple hours where he waited in his room. And I think the things that the state noted this incident too. So they went back a couple months later and did an audit of the facility and, you know, they were disturbed by the incident itself, but also just by the fact that these kind of things were becoming more and more common and there was very little accounting for what happened. So even if, you know, one were to say that this was the only outcome that could happen, the teen had resisted to the degree that they had no option, um, which is not clear in the records, that there was no write-up, there was no debriefing, the types of things that are typical and required of any kind of state facility I've covered um, would be that that would be, you know, a multi-page report examining, you know, did we follow all protocols, what happened, when did we get medical services called, and there's just no accounting for any of the, you know, any of this situation, even though it was pretty serious. Yeah, Charlie, I'll let you weigh in here. You've heard what Molly had to say, and you've read the articles. Well, it occurs to me, the, the difficulty is that there's no real authority for the Department of Juvenile Justice to step in and kind of make these, basically, their local operations, they're run by the, the circuit courts, to, to require improvements to be made. Because you read through the, the auditor's reports from the Department of Juvenile Justice, they visit these places. And they say, well, here are the shortcomings. And then you come back, oh, maybe six months later, and then they'll list again. Well, here, here's what we found last time. Here's what we recommended. And then they would say, yes, the recommendations were met or not met. And in the case of the facility in Benton, most of the recommendations are not met. As a matter of fact, and Mala, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it appears that Benton is probably the worst of all these 16 facilities in how it takes care of it, the youths in its charge. I think that's right. I mean, and I think the state is acknowledging that and calling it a facility in crisis. I mean, they certainly don't rank them. And there were uh, uh, several others, a handful of others that had serious problems as well with seclusion and restraints. And one of the extreme challenges of this is there are these IDJJ reports, that's the Department of Juvenile Justice, um, that are made available online, but the the facilities themselves are not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So the types of records that we might typically get um, to learn more, uh, for instance, I did send a FOIA um, to Franklin County because it is also quasi run by the county seeking things about, you know, information about how often restraints are, restraints are used, significant event reports, things that might allow us to put even more context to what's happening beyond the IDJJ reports. Um, and that they just don't respond because the courts are not subject to FOIA. Now, I think we can make an argument that the county is and any records they may maintain, but uh, it's really it's it's a really difficult thing to get at. And so I think that's why there's been not a lot of attention on it, because it is sort of shrouded in secrecy because it is operated by the courts, even though this is not what you would think of as a typical court function. It's not a courtroom. Right. But that's the, their administrative arm. But they are not required to turn over the records that we ask for. I've not read all of the, the materials that you guys relied on, but I've read some of them. And I've also read reports on the actual 
uh, for want of a better term, the, the juvenile jails that the state itself runs. There's half a dozen youth centers. And it strikes me that the conditions on these sort of local uh, operations is a lot worse than they are in the state-run juvenile correction facilities. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. There have certainly been problems uh, reported on them as well. And I think they've gotten maybe because they've gotten more attention, because again, they are a little bit more in the public purview. They're subject to FOIA. You know, they have to make information available about their, uh, you know, they would call them long-term residential centers. They're more akin to prison. So that's where the state runs the facilities that if a child, you know, held in one of these quote unquote jails or detention centers is adjudicated delinquent um, and sentenced to a long-term facility, then they're going to go to a state-run facility. And I think that's right. There's been, more, there's still problems inside of them. So I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture, but I think that um, there has been more attention and the advocacy and journalism communities um, that they have forced the subject um, and, and improved conditions to some degree. And that these youth, these youth detention centers, because of their convoluted management structures, because they aren't subject to FOIA, have sort of slipped behind the, the cracks in Illinois. So there is a lawsuit pending, Molly. I believe some advocates have, have put that out there. What is it alleging and what do they want to see happen? The American Civil Liberties Union did file suit on behalf of a single youth who had been held at the facility in Benton, alleging widespread failures uh, to things like failing to make mental health treatment available, uh, inadequate schooling, um, you know, poor conditions, unnecessary restraints and seclusions. And they are seeking class action status for that, which would then apply to conditions, you know, for any youth coming in afterward. Um, I think they are really seeking to force their hand to improve conditions. And in interviewing the ACLU lawyer, that's Kevin Fee, who uh, is leading that case, you know, he said that reading the reports from the Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice would have made one think that, you know, the state was aware of these things. This is an issue of these things hiding in plain sight. They knew of them and and he would have assumed that that would have itself moved them to correct conditions more quickly than they did. Um, but because IDJJ lacks any real authority, uh, the Supreme Court has some authority, but it is also extremely limited in what it can or will do, um, that they filed a lawsuit when when the reports themselves did not motivate improved conditions. Um, so that's pending, uh, just to be clear, both parties, the circuit judge in the county, as well as the county itself, which is sued, have, you know, have denied the allegations and sought a, a jury trial. So it sounds as though that maybe there's, I don't want to call it a legislative failure here, but something when these were set up, something has not worked correctly. Uh, and, and there seems to be gaps in who can take responsibility or who's willing to take responsibility. I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but does it seem as though that the solution may have to come from, say, the state legislature at some point? It does seem like this is an issue that needs to come before the legislature. And I will say that because everyone I interviewed, I, I heard very few people uh, strongly defend the current structure, including those who are you know currently involved in the oversight. Um, you know, no one said to me, this is actually working great. You don't understand. Um, they they acknowledge shortcomings. I think you can see that the uh, director of the Department of Juvenile Justice is quoted in the story saying, 
you know, she didn't feel like it was her place to advocate for what the legislature should do, but that this was, this is the system they set up and that this is not best practice. Those are the words she used. Um, so I haven't heard anyone, at least those that I was able to talk to really strongly defend the current system. Everyone seems to have this notion that this is something that needs to be looked at. And no one had, I will also say no one's, no one had sort of a bulletproof, this is the answer exactly, just that um, this doesn't seem to be working and many of the other states i looked at they do have like licensure and certification and we have licensure and certification in illinois for all kinds of things right including like other types of facilities that youth are held into that the department of children and family services might be licensing um so this does seem to be an area that just stands out as as different um both within what other states are doing but also what we're doing in illinois with other types of facilities that might be holding vulnerable people I agree that this is something the legislature needs to look at and maybe seriously considering giving the Department of Juvenile Justice more authority so that the auditor's reports are acted upon. And if the county facility doesn't act on them, there's some kind of a mechanism to, to require them to act, maybe change the statute to, as an extreme, put the state in charge of these facilities. There's what, there's 16 of them across the state. And that would be something, uh, the, the state, as I understand it, the, the state basically through the Supreme Court allocation each year pays most of the operating expenses. And then the, the, the state should be able to kind of have more authority to see actually what's happening rather than just come in and say, oh man, this is really bad. We think you ought to do this. And then in essence, have the, the the locals kind of thumb their nose at the state. And they have made, I will, you know, in, in fairness to Franklin County, there have been a few things they have tried to improve doing. And my understanding is one of the biggest challenges is staffing. But at one point they were paying, this has been increased just recently, but they were paying these folks $28,000 a year. So I think in some ways, you know, there is a financial component um, to the failures. I don't think you can expect to pay people for a pretty difficult job. That requires a lot of training and compassion and empathy for really challenged youth, you know, and expect them to keep coming to work for $28,000 a year in this economy. And, and one thing that that struck me in, in reading your story and other stories dealing with criminal justice, you might say, is that there's sort of like two schools of thought. One is, well, you committed the crime, you do the time. And so it doesn't matter if you're 72 years old and you're you're dying of lung cancer, you're still going to be there in Stateville or wherever. Uh, and the other side would be we have to, particularly with young people, we have to realize where they're coming from. What kind of trauma did they experience as younger kids that caused them to act the way they did? And how can we modify that behavior so that when they lead or care, and obviously they're not going to be in a juvenile facility forever, that they'll have the tools to be able to cope with life situations and become productive adults. That's right, because most, most of these kids are not going, I would say almost all, are not going away for life. Like we, we treat juveniles differently for good reason than we do adults. And when I was looking up some of the youth, um, you know, they're not named in the story and they're not named in the lawsuit, but I was able to identify a few of them and I can see things going on in their lives. I mean, you know, one of them had, was a runaway beginning at age 13. Um, you know, father was in and out of prison, mother passed away. I mean, 
you know, th these kids have gone through some pretty difficult situations. And there were stories um, that others have written about how the Department of Children and Family Services sometimes keeps children in these facilities even after their cases have concluded. And they could be sent home on probation um, or, you know, or, or something like that, not necessarily going to a youth quote unquote prison, but they're kept there because they can't get into the next placement, whether that's with a foster parent or a treatment center, if they have, you know, alcohol or drug rehabilitation that they've been uh, ordered to comply with. And so they just linger in these facilities. Um, so I think that we have to recognize that a lot of these youth are, you know, they are, we are actually putting fewer people in these facilities, which is a good thing. Fewer youth are going here. There's been a recognition that, you know, people can be held in the community. Um, but the ones that are going to, to have, I think, a lot more challenges and the facilities just don't seem to be set up to meet their mental health uh, and other emotional, social developmental needs. We'll continue to follow this story and Molly's reporting on it. And uh, speaking of reporting, both uh, Molly and Beth Hunsdorfer with Capital News Illinois have done the uh, investigations into developmental centers in the state. We've discussed your reporting on the show before. and It's a must read if you uh, have not done so. But Molly, what, if anything, has happened on the policy front since we last talked on that this summer? Yeah, um, that, that was a series that Beth Hunsdorfer and I worked on for quite a while and, and are continuing to follow uh, today. Um, at show, the governor announced in March that they were going to be moving out half of the residents. And I think that we talked about that on the show. Um, and since then, uh, over the summer, uh, late summer, it, they also announced that they were going to replace the head of the show mental health center in Anna. And so they have done that. Uh, Bryant Davis, who was the director there, stayed on in a, in a capacity as a consultant to kind of help for a while with the transition. But he has since moved on. He actually does remain with the Illinois Department of Human Services. Um, but a new person, uh, Stephanie Honer, I believe is how you say her name. Uh, may have gotten that wrong, but she is now the director of the show Mental Health and Developmental Center. So there has been some leadership change, um, but I know that a lot of the advocates are continuing to monitor conditions and concerned about the folks who, both those who are moving and making sure that those moves go smoothly. Um, some of those folks are being moved into other developmental centers across the state of Illinois. And I, there's some problems in them too. So we focused on showed because its problems seem to be the most acute, um, but certainly some troubling conditions inside some of the facilities these residents are moving to. And then there's a number of people being left behind at the facility that are still, I think, a focus of uh, those who are monitoring this situation. You mentioned a moment ago the uh, uh, youth detention facilities and the money that many people are being paid to work there. Is it a similar thing possibly going on in these developmental centers as well? I mean, the, I don't think the state is paying uh, huge wages to people doing some very difficult work. I think that staffing is part of the challenge, staffing and pay. Um, I certainly think that the state-run jobs are probably more than the county-run ones, but I do think you see in these, where you have these facilities in these remote locations, so some of these similar issues, um, you do see staffing challenges because of pay, because of um, the hours worked. I actually don't think the pay is real too bad for a person living in this area because you have to understand that the ability to get a job um, is, is difficult. And so the state actually probably offers some of the better jobs in terms of pay and benefits in this region, um, even though it's not great for the challenging work that they do. 
Um, but I think that the amount of hours people have to work, the stress, the you know lack of training that they're receiving to feel like they can do their job competently, I think all of those things really factor in. And then just having a a rural workforce, you know, makes it all the more challenging to make sure these places are not only staffed, but staffed with, I think, appropriate people who have the patient skills and training to treat these vulnerable and challenging populations. And part of the difficulty is getting people in, in Molly said remote locations, in a sense they are from the population centers, but finding people who have the kind of background that would help them do a good job, the kind of training maybe in juvenile psychology or something. One of the things I noticed, there's even one of the, the findings about the facility in Benton was that the, the people who were preparing the food for the kids there, uh, they weren't dietitians and they were feeding them stuff that was probably not appropriate. And I, I don't know the, what would you say, all the, the factors of dietary stuff, but the one pointed out that they weren't getting enough protein, weren't getting enough uh, vegetable material. And so you have to wonder, how do you attract a professional who would have the training and the, the skill to work with these kind of students when you're basically at a location that's miles away from, for want of a better term, big city life. I, I would, I yeah. would that's, it's kind of hard. And it's and not- all of this is cyclical because the, the staff isn't trained. The kids aren't getting the food or the, or the, the individual with developmental disabilities. They're not getting the food they need. They're not getting the like physical activity or just engaging activity they need. So they act out. So when, and when they act out, the staff aren't trained. And so the, so it tends to fall into some category of abuse. They overcompensate by trying to, you know, do something uh, aggressive. And by this point, all of these things are related to what's happening. I don't think most people set out and go to their job and think, I'm going to break this kid's arm, or I'm going to, you know, rough up this person with intellectual disabilities. I think because the systems themselves are broken, you just have a lot of behaviors that are uh, percolating because they, people don't have enough to do. Or if you're locked in your room all day, I think a lot of us would probably um, act out, right? And we don't have some of the trauma that these folks are that these folks are living with. Um, so I would just throw that in that the staffing challenges relate to the behaviors and that relates to the abuse and neglect allegations. All right. Well, we're going to go to our notes from the field. And Charlie, let's hear what you have to say this week. Well, the uh, Illinois Commerce Commission last week approved rate increases for the state's major natural gas utilities. And you would think all the consumer advocacy groups would be unhappy because rate increases were approved. But in what one consumer advocate suggested was an earthquake, the regulators actually cut substantially the rate increases being sought. And sort of the, in the past years, the Commerce Commission was seen as sort of like a rubber stamp for whatever the utilities wanted. Well, this time around, they really whacked back some of the... Uh, requests. And as a result, people are going to wind up paying less. Uh, for example, the People's Gas up in Chicago area had asked for a $402 million increase, and the ICC cut it back to $300 million. In the case of Ameren, Illinois, Ameren had requested roughly a $72 million increase in its rates. 
but the Commerce Commission only allowed 36 billion. So they basically only gave Ameren half of what they were asking for. And they also totally suspended a program that Peoples is supposed to be replacing century old gas lines and it's behind schedule over budget. And so the Commerce Commission says, okay, we're not gonna give you any more money for that. And we're gonna investigate to see what the heck you're doing. And the, the commission also suggested, which I thought was interesting, that the utilities start thinking about how do we move beyond natural gas, which produces carbon dioxide. And another thing that I found interesting is that the the commission also established a new low-income discount rate. All right, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Thanks for being with us. Also, our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Molly Parker, a reporter with Capital News Illinois and assistant professor at SIU Carbondale. You can find our show where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford. Join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.